Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Elmore. My guest today is Ryan Lindsay. Ryan is an associate professor of practice at Washington University in St. Louis at the Brown School, where he chairs, teaches, and advises students within the mental health concentration and the Master of Social Work program. Ryan specializes in several evidence-based treatments and is currently a certified dialectical behavioral therapist and expert in the application of prolonged exposure therapy for complicated PTSD. His work also includes community-level intervention through his involvement in school-based suicide prevention and community-based suicide prevention efforts. Today, we're talking with Ryan about systemic improvement for suicide prevention. Welcome, Ryan. We're glad to have you. So great to be here. Thanks, Aaron. Of course. Well, as we get started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what brought you into this field? Yeah, I think a lot of people who end up in the social work field or in the mental health field, we end up here because we had our own struggles with mental health. For me, I grew up in the Midwest, in a suburb of a city and in a very non-diverse, very white, kind of very Catholic area. And I grew up a little gay boy and in this area. And so I didn't get to see a lot of people like me in the media. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And so for me, growing up, if I were to be who I was, meant I was going to end up getting AIDS and dying. And it was a result of God punishing me. For and so you can imagine when you grow up in societies in which you're kind of ostracized and kind of not seen. And, and if there were stories, these were stories of pain and, you know, a life of hardship and a life of rejection. These were not stories that we were seeing that had anything to do with surviving and thriving and like the huge giant communities queer communities that did exist, you know, during that time, I didn't have any exposure to that. So you imagine mental health would be negatively impacted by that experience. And for me, that was true. And I experienced a lot of anxiety, depression, and even my own suicidality in my early teen years. And luckily I found community. I found, you know, acceptance within the band community. I'm a musician and I organized myself in the service of like achievement and that worked really well for me. And I had a really amazing family. And so things worked out, but that doesn't mean that, you know, everybody gets that opportunity. And so for me, when I started kind of selecting my career path, the things that I became really good at was, you know, I had my own pain, so I understood other people's pain. So empathy was just naturally there. I also come from a family. My mother is like the problem solver for like when she's one of eight Irish Catholic family and she's solving everybody's problems. And so I watched this growing up, you know, and, and so I think that combination of like understanding people and wanting to help was you know, kind of bred into me. And when I decided to pursue a career, social work really landed for me. And actually I, I credit my sister for that. She's She's mm. younger than I, but she chose social work before me. And I had a liberal arts or humanities or something in undergrad that I had to do. And she's like, I'm starting my social work curriculum. You should take this intro course with me. And I was currently doing psychology and sociology. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is actually what I want to do. I wanna, there you go. I, I want to go that, I want to go this route. So that's how I got here. Thanks for sharing all that and being vulnerable. I mean, yeah, I think sometimes the the most impactful change and the world comes from pain and comes from mm-hmm. personal experience. And so this is definitely something it sounds like close to your story and close to your heart. And yeah, thanks for sharing that. It makes sense. 
So you, you kind of led into this a little bit, but can you explain how your perspective is different as a social worker, as opposed to a psychologist, mental health therapists, you know, how, how do you approach things differently because of your social worker training? Yeah, actually at the individual level of provider, I think many of us are doing the same things. We're thinking about things very similarly and we're trained to do very similar things. I think what differentiates social work training from other trainings as a profession is really not only contextualizing kind of like humans in the context of their their biological, psychological, developmental trajectories, but they're centered and contextualized within the systems and Mm. structures that really concentrate wealth and power and privilege within dominant elements. And we're trained to look at systems of oppression and how those systems are both maintained, but also disproportionately allocate the resources. So the access to the things we need to thrive, wealthy folks and people who are well-resourced have access to, especially mental health services and resources and demands on their time that are different. That really impacts, you know, mental well-being as a whole and mental health as a whole. And then, you know, suicide as a sub context of that. Yeah. Well, well explained. Yeah. Cause as a psychologist, we were trained in somewhat of systems, but it's more looking at, you know, the, the generational impact or the family system impact or what's going on culturally. But yeah, it sounds like there's much more of a heavy emphasis in social work training on how do we bridge the gap with inequities and how do we intervene at that level in addition to individual level, which is great. Yeah. Interventions are really designed. Okay. How do we hit at the policy level? Right. We think about structuring our systems so that we can create, you know, equity in terms of access and, right. and equity really defined here different than equal that different people need different things. Different communities need different things to be able to thrive. And so like a one size fits all doesn't work in these contexts. And, and then the other piece is like really looking at not only how do these systems and structures kind of lead into and contribute to trajectories, but also amplify baseline risks to begin with. And so mm-hmm. kind of what makes it much harder to be able to address your mental health conditions if the people that you're seeking care from don't look like you or do not have a lived experience that you know matches your own lived experience. And I think the other piece to that is just the accessibility and kind of how we think about interventions and the language and the communication patterns in which we use that matters too. So absolutely. I'm just thinking about your story and your background and how you have a unique perspective to really be able to see that and experience that because you've lived through it. And then, you know, people who are more privileged and more comfortable, it's harder for them to see automatically the gaps that are there or the inequity that is there. And it's, it's so needed. There's so many people that fit into some kind of marginalized category and we're really, really trying to help them in our field, you know? So that's, that's great. Yeah. Bridging into the topic of suicide and suicide prevention, I'm just curious for our listeners or just for how you think about it. Can you define how you think about someone who is struggling with the draw of suicide? Yeah. So I think it's important to to be able to define what is suicidal behavior. Suicidal behavior would be any type of thinking or planning or attempts that are oriented around anyone's life. So like the permanent end of one's life. And I think this is important to differentiate between a concept called non-suicidal self-injury, which is often referred to as cutting or harming oneself. 
that is really defined as the intentional harming of one's skin uh, and creating damage to one's physical body. But the goal is not to end one's life. It's often in the context of trying to regulate emotions in the moment. It's often associated with distress, but the engagement in non-suicidal self-injury does increase risk for suicide long-term. Yes. I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. There's actually went to a training on that fairly recently. Yeah. And exactly like you said, they conceptualize it as a lack of coping or, you know, an inability to process the pain that they're in, but most people who cut or starve themselves or anything like that, it's not, they're not actually, their goal is not to die. They just are overwhelmed. But of course, if you engage in those behaviors, they do become addictive. And then the more you do that, the more likely you are to actually really harm yourself. So then how would you define someone who's really struggling with suicidal ideation or behaviors? How is, how does that feel or look different? Yeah. And the, the characteristics that are more associated is about the permanency of Mm -hmm. unbearable pain. When I'm assessing and kind of thinking about behaviors that might look similar, but the function is quite different. I'm thinking about the You know, the function of suicide often is to end this pain that feels hopeless and people feel helpless. There there isn't anything out there that can change their experience. Contrast it with non-suicidal self-injury where it is, and it's a strategy that's deployed in in the midst of generally pretty intense experiences that tend to change their emotional experience in the moment. And so yes. there's a, there's a level of control and functionality that brings sometimes a, a sense of relief. Now that's not the only reason why people engage in that, but that's the most prominent reason when we kind of take a look at how does this behavior function? It's usually around emotion regulation. Well said, well said. Yeah. And there are some markers or red flags, I suppose, for suicidal risk that we can assess, mm-hmm. um, I guess as family members too, but mm-hmm. definitely as clinicians we're trained on that. And so there are some primary markers to, to see if somebody's increasing their risk of suicide, including like past suicide attempts, or like you said, the duration and the chronic nature of how they're feeling. And if there is anything that gives them hope or not. So yeah, really, really good definition there. How do you focus on suicide prevention? Yeah. At a couple of different levels, I am trained as a clinical social worker. So I mainly functioned at that individual and group level and family level intervention. And so when I think about prevention through intervention, I think about what kinds of treatments or interventions do people have access to that can help change their suicidal trajectories in the future? Okay. So I think about, you know, at that individual family and group level, how do we equip individuals and families you know, to be able to manage the intensity of experiences or the pain and suffering that they're experiencing long-term? So can we increase a skill level we all learn how to navigate this world differently. And mm-hmm. sometimes our ways of navigating and coping were really important for our survival historically, but no longer become an important part or actually become harmful You know, later on. What once was true and needed is no longer. So sometimes it's helping people move from what, what worked before to something that they don't know they no longer need now in the context of skill development. Mm-hmm. Uh, So I think about it from from that level. I think about also suicide prevention from what are the policies and practices at our organization level that either help or hinder help seeking or help or hinder my capacity as a clinician Mm. to be helpful or help or hinder people who are experiencing suicidality from being able to seek help. 
And a lot of our policies and practices are very risk averse. So they're, yes. they're, they're fear-based. And so people are not well-trained often in the context and to no fault of their own. Our systems actually fail in the training. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, but I think about we can have a system that responds really punishingly and with a, kind of like a one size fits all for every person who's thinking about suicide. Yeah. And we have to remember that like a little over 12 million adults think about suicide a year, you know, a little over 3 million make a plan and a little over a million actually attempt suicide. And then about 600,000 people receive medical attention. And the number of people who die by suicide is around 46,000. Mm-hmm. So at each kind of like this ideation to action, you know, spectrum, we need something different and we need responses that look different based on the imminency of risk in a moment. Mm. And most of our systems, our organizations and the policies, when people come to the attention of being at risk, this big one size fits all over response that requires somebody to be, you know, transported to an emergency room or and yes. you sit in an emergency room for eight, nine, 12 hours before you're assessed. Maybe, you know, you're sent home, maybe you're admitted into an inpatient unit for three to seven days or something. These experiences, you know, are, are needed in certain contexts, but in a lot of contexts, it's not. And so I think a lot about work that I do is helping organizations and community members understand that there's a lot of nuance when it comes to this and that we have to be able to be better at our assessment so that we can have better interventions that are more nuanced mm-hmm. and match the need. Yes. I love how you're explaining that. Yeah. As you're saying that I'm reflecting on occasional clients I've had who are in those situations. And it's even sometimes really hard for clients to be honest with their therapists about this is actually what I'm thinking and actually what I'm feeling because so many of us are trained to just jump straight to like, okay, we're going to the hospital. And so I used to explain to my clients, like, look, my goal is to keep you out of the hospital. Like we don't want, you don't want to go there. I don't want you to go there. And and you're right. There's not much in between that we're trained to use. There's not many resources in between, especially when you're an outpatient therapist. Right. Yeah. In some situations, like you said, it's necessary. I'm glad we do have the hospital option, but in some cases it can exacerbate the problem or cause more trauma because it's just not as sensitive to the nuances like you're talking about. And I have a, a colleague who specializes with suicidal clients. And I remember meeting with her one time and talking about it. And she's like, I hardly ever hospitalize my clients. There's so many things we can do mm-hmm. in between, but I just think a lot of us aren't trained on that or the systems aren't as well known. Yeah. Really great that you're focusing on that. Yeah. It's, it's really moving the, the question from, are you thinking about suicide? This binary yes or no to what's the intensity of your suicidality right now? You're yes. thinking what is, what's the intensity of an urge and how does this compare to your baseline? You know, if I think about suicide on a daily basis and never moved from this ideation to planning or to action, if that intensity is a two on any given day, then what I'm doing right now with no intervention is preventable, you know, and I'm not moving it. It doesn't mean that somebody compared to somebody that isn't thinking about suicide, they're not at an increased risk. But a hospitalization would be a really large response to somebody who thinks about it daily and never acts. Versus somebody who never thinks about it and actually starts thinking about it in their attitude. They're not treated equally. And I think that that's the nuance we really need to be getting at is understanding people's relationship to themselves in their baseline in terms of mental health, their levels of coping and suicidality, rather than always trying to kind of put us as providers in this 
this magical like unicorn space where we can predict people's behavior with tools right. that are ineffective and inadequate. <laughs> right, know? right, right. Because people are not really that predictable all the time. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think a lot of that may go back to provider anxiety. I'm curious your thoughts on this, but yes, yeah. even as a practicing therapist, I remember, you know, we get nervous when people are not well, because we want them Absolutely. to be okay. And yeah. there's always this pressure of risk and, you know, are you going to get sued by the family member if something happens? And so I think as providers, sometimes that anxiety takes over and, and maybe our motives are good. We want to help this person, but we're missing the point. They need to be able to process their feelings, even the really scary ones and being contained without somebody overreacting. Yeah, totally. This is exactly what my work centers around. It's really understanding that providers care deeply and our system has really failed to train us really well. Like less yes. than 20% of mental health educational programs at the master's level actually have formal education in suicide risk assessment. Mm -hmm. Most of what we learn is on the job. It's in our internship, practicum, and then, you know, in our agencies or wherever we end up working in our career. So the formality and the standardization that helps bring us into this field as the people who are actually designated as the referral source for those that have been identified at risk, our training is actually quite inadequate. But then the other piece to this is, that, and I talk about it a lot, is that we care deeply about the outcomes of the people we're working with. That's why right. we're here. We have a values threat that is arising when somebody is talking about thinking about suicide. And then you have the extra layer of the litigious nature of our society of what would happen if I did lose a client to suicide. And those two, those fear-based factors then drive a real strong narrowing of options and really move us to this better safe than sorry. Right you know, kind of approach where the assumption is like, if you're assessed in the ER, that they're better trained to assess in the inpatient. The thing is, is that people aren't, they're not better trained, you know? And so I think that, and, and they don't know this person, like you said, they don't know their baseline right. at all. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. That gets at the heart of a lot of what I do. And what I spend a lot of my time on is helping providers learn more about suicide as a topic and knowledge base, increase that knowledge base, provide opportunities for practicing and narrowing in on the nuances of the risk assessment and intervention selection, and really getting to this piece where a lot of times a hospitalization is really functioning as support and monitoring, meaning it's helping to contain or provide eyes on. Well, there's lots of ways we can do that in the community, if we have people that we can engage in and there's a community of humans that can help with that support and monitoring, then we have a lot more options in front of us. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we're mostly talking about the interpersonal level here, like therapist yeah. to client. I'm also really curious, the systemic level, your thoughts on that, because I know we do have some interventions in place, like the suicide hotline and things like that. So I'm wondering your thoughts on interventions that are already there at the systemic level that are helpful. And then also if you have any ideas of what could be changed, like how could we do this better systemically? We have really robust systems on one hand. In fact, we probably have the most crisis response. We have most services yeah. in the crisis response piece. What we're lacking is more community-based and family-based interventions. Where the options we have is I can individually call a suicide hotline who are doing amazing work in our community and saving lives every single day by answering those calls, being a sounding board and listening and getting into safety planning. 
This is a really important function in our society. What we also need though, is we need more community-based. So we don't have to rely upon somebody going into, you know, an inpatient unit for a brief stay. I work a lot with children and, and adolescents and youth and families and ran a program for 13 years that was an in-home, community-based, family-based or you know, treatment that was really designed to help keep people in, in their homes. And so that included a whole bunch of psychoeducation for families so they can better understand suicide specific to their child. And then also what can they do to help support and coach and, and respond so that they felt more equipped and capable of responding rather than saying, oh, you have this, we've got to go immediately to the hospital. And I, and I think what we don't have is that middle ground between that. We don't, yeah. have, we don't have a system in, in place of, if I'm thinking about this, is there some other you know, service that I can either access, call to not only assess, but do safety planning together and collaboratively mm -hmm. so that people can stay in communities where they're going to get their healing at? Mm -hmm. uh, because our emergency response systems are not designed for healing, they're designed for stabilization. Exactly. And, which might be an important part of somebody's trajectory. But it's not what everyone needs. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else. So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig time, make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com slash B-H-T, and then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. That's app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow. Right, right. And I don't know why I'm thinking of it this way, but for some reason I'm thinking about like Western medicine versus Eastern medicine. Like we are really good in our culture at Western medicine of like, yes. you get in a car accident, we will sew your arm back on. No mm -hmm. problem. Like we got Correct. this. So yes. I'm thinking of it in that way where it's like, we are great with the worst case scenario and stabilization yeah. and crisis. And actually I think we have pretty good systems. Well, I'll get your thoughts too, but I think we have fairly good systems for having someone re-enter into their community after such a huge need after, mm -hmm. after a hospitalization, there's tiered programs, right? Yeah. But right. It's, it's like, we don't, we don't do much in our culture to prevent things. Or right. I'm thinking again of the Western Eastern medicine model where, you know, there's, we don't focus too much on healthy eating or, you know, just like systemic health, as opposed to we wait till there's a crisis and then we address the crisis. And I'm, I'm seeing that reflected now in the mental health field as well, from what you're saying. And it's so true. There's not much resource except your outpatient therapist to support you up until the crisis point. And that, that sometimes is fine, but not always we need more options. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah. And then that takes me to, you know, the prevention end, the upstream, like how, how are we creating systems and societies that promote wellness? 
mm-hmm. you know, and I like this, like, how do we think about this Western versus Eastern? And I think about like, how do we integrate both of those and create a synthesis of that dialectic? The most healthy um, type of person. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and the, the prevention piece is we do have really good gatekeeper training and prevention pieces that are in our communities, but they're mostly tested and are very white populations and well-resourced areas. Mm. So what's not at the table is the tailoring around the equity conversation where mm. the people who are developing the the programs, evaluating the programs and implementing the programs are, are typically, you know, you know, there's not a diversity within that context. And so right. I do, all, the other piece that I like to talk a lot about is that We've got to get our, our conversations moved towards, okay, how do we tailor some of these programs, but also get communities to the table so we better understand how people think about suicide that is not just the very kind of Eurocentric, white, right. dominant, you know, resourced perspective, which is where most of the resources have been really applied Right. And, and we need to move that forward. And, you know, that's that, uh, you know, that justice, that social justice element to this. We're not talking about equity as part of this. We're also leaving out a whole host of humans that are at risk of suicide that fail to be detected, identified, or even created the, the bridging and, and resources of who is a trusted individual in your community to have this conversation. with. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so needed. I love, I love that. I'm just curious, practically speaking, what might this look like? I mean, I know you're working on all these things, but I'm imagining some kind of community where you can call and there are trained therapists on staff to like come to you and talk to you and assess you or connect you with resources. Am am I on the right track of what you're thinking or how how do you imagine this looking on the ground? Yeah, I think about it. I think about it as different for each, for each community that, you know, we have like locally here in St. Louis, we have an amazing organization called behavioral health response. And they, they are doing a lot of that outreach. Okay. There's just not enough of it generally. So the funding for it and the sustainability of it becomes in jeopardy, or it's really hard to stay doing that work for a really long time when the general industry is so low paying, you yeah. know, and, and those organizations do an amazing job with what the resources are allocated. There's just not enough resources allocated to really address the problem of suicide in our communities. So I think it's like that. But I also think we need to be thinking more broadly on who are people who are having these conversations and, and who is willing to have these conversations. And I think about our faith community and how are conversations around suicide different from one faith community, the next faith community, the next faith community. I think about, you know, from a racial equity lens, what do different people need, you right. know, and who is a trusted person to hold this conversation? And then what kinds of services follow? Right, and right, yeah. The kinds of service that follow is where we're, we don't have enough of, and we don't have an inv- enough academic investment in understanding it to even drive what happens in communities. And so right. there's this misalignment of what we have available and what a community might seem as or deem acceptable in their community. Absolutely. Yeah. That reminds me of doing, um, I went on a mission trip in college mm-hmm. and you know, most mission trips you go in and you have your own agenda of what you're going to be doing, mm-hmm. but then you leave. And so it's like, 
what did you really accomplish there? Was that actually more disruptive for the community? And this mission trip on I really enjoyed because they were like, we don't have an agenda. We're just going for a month and mm-hmm. we'll figure out what, what they need when we get there. And that framework was so wonderful. And I've carried it with me in many other situations. And I think I hear you saying that is like, first we need funding and then we need research to figure out mm-hmm. what is needed. And then we can craft these interventions. Yeah. But yeah, I, that definitely makes sense. And it definitely is an area of need. Yeah, it's really that, that community-engaged and participatory research piece. Right. So that communities are driving the questions. Communities, voice, and language are what's helping us stack up and build multi-level interventions. And I think that that's where we need to be investing as a community. Right, exactly. And then you can meet the need once you figure out what's what really would fit that need. Yeah. Yeah. I like stories. Do you have any success stories of someone that used a community program and it, and it benefited them or maybe even saved their life from suicide? Yeah. I'll talk a little bit more broadly because I don't have permission okay. to share a single story. Fair so enough. Kinda, yes. I've been doing this for a long time so I can um, create a create a kind of scene for this. Okay. So first I'm, I'm going to talk about dialectical behavior therapy as an intervention. So DBT is the first psychological intervention that has been developed that demonstrated reduction in suicide attempts. So about 50% reduction in that. And so dialectical behavior therapy is a comprehensive program. I mean, it includes individual therapy. It, it includes group skills training. It requires me as a, a provider to, to sit with a community of therapists and providers to be able to called a consultation team. And then it also requires me to have 24 seven access for skills coaching. It's kind of a system response to a wide range of difficulties for people who have chronic suicidality. And that chronic suicidality is generally driven by a pervasive emotion dysregulation, meaning Mm -hmm. the lability in, in emotions where emotions come on very quickly when they have them and it goes really high when they get it and it takes a really long time for it to come back down. And so we call that an emotional vulnerability. And so in general, this intervention, you know, has been shown to be very, very, very effective. And so I've worked probably with, I don't know, hundreds of clients over the course of my 20 years in practice that have come into services who have actually made a lot of suicide attempts in their life. Their, Their lives are complex. There are amazing parts about their lives and there's some really, really miserable parts of their lives Mm -hmm. um, and everything in between them. And I think what I like about DBT and what I like about interventions that focus on building a life that's worth living for that person, these are individuals and and these are folks that get to be in charge of their life. They get Mm -hmm. to be able to think about what is it I need in my life to feel like this life is worth living rather than us as a society saying, you should stay living in this life. Yeah. And the assumption in DBT is that it makes sense that suicidality would be on the scene because life is not feeling like it's worth living. So let's build it. And that, and it's a systematic way in which people can learn how to build that life worth living by better understanding their relationship to their emotional experience mm-hmm. and really centering, you know, what prompts my anger what prompts my fear? What prompts my, you know, sadness? What prompts my shame? And then making decisions on what I want to do with it rather than our, my emotions, you know, driving all of the response patterns. And so it, it centers trying to help people find their own wise self that mm-hmm. is in there, you know? 
Yes. Um, I can't tell you the number of people who come in in a state of wanting to die and leave not wanting to die or, or giving up or closing the door to suicide because they've learned how to be able to tolerate things. They've learned how to be able to prevent things from setting off emotional experiences. Uh, they've learned when avoidance is actually super effective. And they also learn when avoidance is actually quite problematic because it's preventing them from being able to achieve the goals that they have for themselves in their lives. You know, they, they they get to center their their relationships and learn how to ask for what they need and want in ways and sometimes saying goodbye to certain relationships that there might be lots of love in that context, but, you know, it also comes with a lot of pain um, mm-hmm. and harm that, it, you know, that people have to learn how to be able to walk away from things. And that's a part of like what everybody is in the world is trying to try to navigate. And so for me, I think it's more about are there systems and healing trajectories out there that can align to different people's perspective. I like DBT because it actually is a, a liter- literally based on the Eastern philosophies and yeah. Western philosophy. It is Western. actually, that's so, so ironic. Yes, it is. So for me, I need that. It's both, you know, right. it's both and um, rather well, than it is because it gives you tools to handle the crisis, but it also addresses the prevention aspect, which is so necessary with suicide. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wonderful, wonderful intervention. I think sometimes we always associate DBT just with borderline diagnosis, mm-hmm. which, I mean, obviously it's effective for that too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as you're speaking about it, I'm thinking it really fits very well with treating suicide. And I guess one aspect of what you're talking that stands out to me is the idea of empowerment, because when someone's feeling suicidal, usually they feel totally at a loss or like they're being swept away by their emotions or that, you know, it's just too, too much, too overwhelming. And so slowly getting back that control and helping people feel empowered to choose who they want in their life, what they want to do, having tools to manage their emotions. That's huge. So that's wonderful. Yeah. And an analogy I often use is, you know, when you're thinking about how do you respond to the pain that you're experiencing, it's similar to like, say you're walking down a super long corridor with like hundreds of doors on the sides but the lights are off. And so the only door that people can see in a suicidal crisis is the only one with a light on inside and that's suicide. Right. And that for providers and for the people in the world, we may not be able to solve all the things that are setting off or making somebody or leading somebody to be thinking about suicide. But all we need to do is help people put their arms out, be able to feel another door and turn the knob and try something different to see if this can also help manage to get through this suicidal crisis because we also know it's episodic. Yes, Pe- yes. People wake up the next day and often, not always, but often feel different. Right. And so we have a lot of research around that. And so, you know, interventions in this context can help people find those doors, help them find those doors more, more effectively and faster and relying on those doors more frequently. Than only seeing the, you know, the door with the light behind it, which is right. I love that image. Cause I think as providers, sometimes we get so panicky. We're like, shut that door, shut that door, but then they have mm-hmm. nothing. And so in reality, it's always an option. It's always their choice if they want to yes. do that or not. Right. So I, I love that analogy of our job is not to shut that door, but to help them open other ones and feel other options. Yeah. That's great. Well, if you could say something to our listeners, what message would you have for them regarding suicide prevention? So first, I would say there's tons of hope. And, you know, a lot of this hope comes through building a life of connectedness to others. And I think we all need to vote for 
the people making policies that fund our service system that care about preventing suicide and mm, care about good. mental health. We are limited what we can do when a large portion of what could be life-saving is inaccessible to some or unsustainable in other contexts. I love research and I love grants because you get to innovate, but if it's not contextualized within a funding system that will sustain those programs, it's problematic. And so right. I think that's one thing. I, I just want to say and appreciate the amazing human beings that are already working and have been working on this mm. issue of suicide in our community, both individuals who are survivors of attempts and those with lived experience, the family members of those that have lost someone to suicide, and all the amazing providers that have been trying and prevention and public health experts and community folks who care about people so much that that they've they've devoted their entire lives to trying to shift systems and create um, pathways to healing. And I just want to say that there's a huge community of us. As we continue to think about how we value and set up, you know, the expectations of our world, we have to really start thinking that there's a mental health consequence of the way in which we organize ourselves around the kinds of productivity we do. Mm. And that productivity-oriented society leads to a lot of meaninglessness for people. And it leads to a level of not being able to honor the assets and beauty of individuals who may not be able to produce on a daily basis based on you know the number of widgets we want to produce on a given day. That kind of conveyor belt kind of world is rife for mental health mm-hmm. issues. You know, it's mm-hmm. the opposite of mental wellness. Right, there's so. a lot of different values that, that can be developed in addition to productivity. Yeah. And yeah. I, think from, I think from that point is that we, we do have to look at our, our, our society and the things we value and the things we invest in and how we create systems and structures to help people and, and that people who do experience suicidality, you know, in, in the absence, if we could have removed some of those experiences, then they likely might not have ever thought about suicide. And I think that that we as a society play a role in trying to do whatever we can to reduce the burden and primarily the rejection that leads to intense shame for people. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well said, well said. As we wind down, tell us more about where we can learn about suicide prevention and where we can learn about you and your work. Yeah, yeah. So I think in general, a great place to to land is our National Suicide Prevention Resource Center which can be found at um, www.sprc.org. So it's our National Suicide Prevention Resource Center that, that does a lot of work and is funded nationally. Our, our National Institutes of Mental Health, if you Google National Institutes of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention, there's a great website about information on there. An organization that I support a lot is the Trevor Project, which is mm-hmm. looking at you know clear and gender nonconforming folks in our world and the issue of the intersection of suicide and how do we create, you know, better systems and responses and, and being able to to call someone who thinks and experiences the world similarly. That's another amazing, you know, place in terms of like finding a little bit more about the Brown School. If you are, you're interested in social work, you can always Google the Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. We have a master's of social work program. We have a master's of public health program, and we have a master of social policy all of which we need systemic interventions. So for those that want to 
pursue a life at the individual family group level. We've got that. For those that want to look at the public health implementation or Im implications, we got a public health program. And, you know, for those that were really focused on the policy piece, we have a social policy program. So that's great. That's great. Ryan, I really appreciate you being here with us today. This was really interesting. Oh, Aaron, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for this podcast, for one, inviting me, but also doing this amazing stuff. And also one last thing for anybody out there that's feeling alone and isolated. If you're ever feeling alone and isolated, touch the ground. I'm connected to you. I'm thinking about you. And there's somebody out there to answer your phone. Oh, I love that. That's so great. Thank you for leaving our listeners with that. I just want to remind our listeners who might be struggling with suicidal thoughts or behaviors, there is the National Suicide Hotline that's available 24-7. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, this may not be appropriate for everyone, but if you're interested in that, the number is 1-800-273-8255. And I want to remind our listeners that this episode, its resources, and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com slash bht. Visit triadhq.com slash BHT today to explore our archive. And we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining in on the conversation. We appreciate you being here with us and look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.